What's up, patrons? It's Emmett. I'm here with John. What's up, John? Hey, what's up? John's back at long last, and we are here to do our reading series on The End of History and the Last Man by Francis Fukuyama, the book everyone loves to hate without ever having read, probably myself included at some times. So I'm excited to get into this one. We did the first section of it, and we'll get into that in a second. First, I wanted to talk about why we were going to do this. And then we want to talk a little bit about Fukuyama himself and what context he's coming out of. And then we're going to get into this first section. So I wanted to do this because the weird German historical philosopher we were doing was basically like too rich and demanding. Like we could have gotten an episode out of every single page we were reading. It was, it was like, it was like too much cake at once. It was like, it's like listening to late period. Yes. Like too many keyboards, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I definitely think not every book is going to lend itself to this kind of thing. Like yeah, some books, like you and I could never sit down and do like something of Aristotle in like 10 episodes. You know what I mean? Like there yeah. just be, it would be <laughs> kind of like, yeah, like it would simply be far too cursory yeah. for what it was and it would be kind of like cheap for people to think that they could listen to that podcast and then like know something well and the I, other one i think it was just a little bit harder like i knew why i was reading it i wasn't sure why i was creating content of it after we did our first episode where i was yeah, like, this is like i well. thought it was marvelous honestly like it really in some of the historical pieces i've written since then has inflected that but yeah i don't think it was right and also one of the things that one of the reasons why we did the true and only heaven or after virtue is not because these are by any means simple books but because that they are important books that tend to get referenced or talked about but never actually read and we'd like to provide access for that and what we like about doing the fukuyama is that it also gives us a window into a period of time that many think to now be at its end or nearing its end mm. perhaps has been for a minute and but because i think that there are some disquieting suggestions he has already i can see them prefigured not just in the title but in the first section about the nature of the end of history and life in the liberal democratic hegemony that seems to be or has been the ideological straitjacket perhaps, that the world has lived in since the fall of the Soviet Union. Now, to talk about Fukuyama himself a little bit. So he grows up in Hyde Park, which is sort of like, a, you know, Rhodesia for tenured professors here in Chicago. And it's part of, it's basically like where you live if you go to University of Chicago. It's a very wealthy neighborhood. Obama's from there. It seems like Fukuyama's from a more upper crust sort of family, I guess because he ends up at Cornell where he studies under Alan Bloom, student of Leo Strauss, who writes The Closing of the American Mind, has done, frankly, my favorite translation of Plato's Republic, and then proceeds from Cornell to go to Yale. And he also spent some time in France studying under Barth and Derrida and studies under Samuel Huntington and Harvey Mansfield. So we sort of get... I mean, this is a very pedigreed type of elite intellectual, somebody who has degrees, I think, for both Harvard and Yale. He ends up doing some work for Rand for a while in the 80s. I don't think that affiliation has ever totally ended. I'm not sure about that. But he is a kind of like high-minded, 
philosophical foreign policy guy that was really important to the shattering classes during the Cold War. And he was a very capable political scientist, even Perry, May, Perry Anderson, who writes a critique of his 2006 book on maybe the Iraq war was a mistake, America at the crossroads, democracy, power, and the neoconservative legacy says that, you know, Fukuyama is generally a pretty sharp guy, even if he thinks that book is kind of less than stellar. But to sort of close this background, I think it's important to talk about like who Fukuyama is going to be thinking with when he's working through this book. And we see sort of a familiar cast of characters. We get Hegel, Obviously, Nietzsche is invoked in the title, but Ruzhev, who's a Hegelian himself living in exile in France during the Cold War, and Anderson captures the influences on his thought like this. The philosophical basis of the construction of The End of History and The Last Man came, as Fukuyama explained, from the reworking of Hegel's dialectic of recognition by a Russian exile in France, Alexander Kozhev, for whom centuries of struggles between masters and slaves, social classes, were on the brink of issuing into a definitive condition of equality, a universal and homogenous state that would bring history to a halt, a conception he identified with socialism and later with capitalism, if always with an inscrutable irony. Fukuyama took over this narrative structure, but grounded it in an ontology of human nature quite alien to Kozhev that was derived from Plato and came, along with a much more conservative outlook, from his Straussian formation. Kozhev and Strauss had valued each other as interlocutors. They have a famous exchange over Plato's, or sorry, Xenophon's dialogue, Hiero, the tyrant, called on tyranny or something like that, I believe you can check that out. It valued each other as interlocutors and shared many intellectual reference points, but politically as well as metaphysically, they were very distant. Strauss, an unyielding thinker of the right, had no time for Hegel, let alone Marx. In his eyes, Kozhev's deduction from their conceptions of liberty and equality could only presage a leveling planetary tyranny. He believed in particular regimes and natural hierarchy. I should also note that uh, Charles Krauthammer, who has a blurb on the cover of this book, you know, he was definitely like consummate cold warrior and neocon, describes this book as bold, lucid, scandalously brilliant. It's definitely like of the adverbial book review type thing, you know, searingly meaningful or whatever. Until now, Krauthammer says, the triumph of the West was merely a fact, period. Fukuyama has given it a deeper and highly original meaning. I should say that when Fukuyama breaks ranks with the neoconservatives partway through the Iraq war, Krauthammer basically calls him an anti-Semite for pointing out that a lot of the neoconservatives were in fact Jewish Americans. <laughs> That's um, really funny. I did yeah, just so you know that how that <laughs> yeah, just so you know how that plays out <laughs> between them. <laughs> Like there's some like clickbait article title for you out there if you want it like Francis yeah. Fukuyama colon based. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, all right. So that's enough background on sort of what this like. This book arrives after he writes an essay called "The End of History," 
that provokes much debate. He talks about this in the introduction, and I think it's in like foreign affairs or national interest or something. I can't even remember. And everybody gets pissed at him. Well, not everybody. And some people are like, yeah, this is dope. And he's like, well, I guess I'm going to have to write a book sort of spelling out what I actually meant here. And this book was the result. It is, I think, the work of liberal triumphalism post-Cold War. I think it is, while... I think it's frankly too even-toned to be considered celebratory, though it does indeed celebrate the downfall of liberalism's competitors. And I also think that uh, it comes with some difficult, as I said, disquieting suggestions about what this victory really means in the long run for the West. So with that, we will begin. Just to take a look at the book here, it's basically breaking up, broken up into four or five parts. Yeah, so it is an old question asked anew, the old age of mankind, the struggle for recognition, leaping over roads, and the last man. And we're taking a look at an old question asked anew. So John, let me ask you, what did you make of this first little section here of the first part? which is called Our Pessimism. It was an interesting window into like very specific people and what they were thinking at the time that he seemed to be writing. Like in some ways, these kinds of thoughts weren't new. Like basically he was saying like there is essentially like communism has fallen and yet there is this sort of persistent sense in which like because he wants to establish the idea that universal history is real it's like a defensible idea mm -hmm. he even says he would like for this book to be successful and that you don't need to like resort to hegel to like defend it and believe in it you can just read mm -hmm. this book and believe in it on the basis that it's laid out on in this book sort of and a so, handsome a handsome amb ambition i would say it's nice to have yeah. somebody that's willing to do that and so the first thing he kind of is dealing with, or there seems to be like a, a widely diffused sense that there's not really any meaning to history and that there is no sort of like, we have been disabused of the notion of progress. And this is like kind of repeated to the point of being trite now, but because of the two world wars, like how could anyone ever believe in anything ever again? Mm -hmm. Like just fucking cry or whatever yeah. forever. Yeah. And yeah, like after Auschwitz and Hiroshima, to a certain point, yeah, 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 exactly. There is this sense, and when I was reading that, I remember thinking, like, it's sort of offensive to like some deep sensibility that you could call like Heideggerian or something that just because of like numbers, you're gonna like become a coward now, like, <laughs> oh, like when like a thousand people were like slaughtered at this time, like it was still possible to like believe in something because it was only a thousand people. They were mm -hmm. brutally killed there were children among them but like whatever fuck them but like now that it was this <laughs> many people like this like million like it's too much like just i look at the figures and i can't handle it anymore you know what i mean like i'm mm -hmm. looking at the spreadsheet and i've lost all of, you know that always struck me as like more or less exactly the argument for that was simply like you know there is something to say like oh like it's so mechanized now or it's so technological like the way in which we can destroy other human beings at such a scale but there is always something overriding in the back of my head whenever i read stuff like that which is sort of like 
fundamentally like what are we saying about the difference between like a life and like one million you know what i mean like there's right, something it's the, weird it's going the one on one life there. is a tragedy a million is a statistic sort of thing exactly like weirdly inverted quote, yeah exactly yeah and so that was kind of starting to come up as like often the reason people would bring for saying like it's hard for me to think that there's progress and you can see the way in which those things would be seen as like a direct contradiction to the idea of progress that was floated right up until they happened which was that science was going to be benign or like largely just positive in terms yeah. of like human flourishing and that it was going to contribute to overcoming disease and all these different things and like standards of living were going to go up and like war would be less necessary because of international trade like things like these were like i guess you could see the most optimistic beliefs and we've like looked at a lot of them already talking about mm -hmm. other books on this exact podcast so it's probably familiar to people who've been listening and then the the occurrence of these wars leaves people thinking oh perhaps all of history is really like mere accident is kind of a common way of phrasing it perhaps events just happen things occur and there is no larger like meaningful structure to be discovered within history which mm -hmm. is maybe the more interesting debate for me yeah i think that's the more rich one i would also like to add for him i don't think he's i think he's too idealist to be a strict technological determin determinist like that where because we've oh, yeah. mechanized, it's it's on that. What he does point out is that there is an ideological political quality to the expansion of mechanized state powers that allow for a more subjective penetration of the political sub in general and the political subject through totalitarianism. And that's really important. And that it's not just that it is like, oh, we've killed a bunch of people, but and I'll read here from page seven. He says, the suicidal self-destructiveness of the European state system in two world wars gave lie to the notion of superior Western rationality. While the distinction between civilized and barbarian that was instinctive to Europeans in the 19th century was much harder to make after the Nazi death camps. Instead of human history leading to a single direction, there seemed to be as many goals as there were peoples or civilizations with liberal democracy having no particular privilege among them. We see this, okay, so that's end quote. We see this in the way people respond to the Great Depression worldwide, and they're all sort of looking over each other's shoulders, whether they're fascist, communist or not, because they're like, I don't know what to do. There's this protean quality that happens, uh, the complete leveling of the life world of 19th century Europe that happens, like, over the course of World War One, I, I would say, including the death of a certain type of honor culture. And I think one of the things that he might add, or that I think he's, he's right to add in this, is that so much of that level of progress, and Lash talked about this, had to do with the idea of like civilizations as like having the same sort of development as a child. And Europe could no longer pretend to a kind of adulthood that had informed its ideology of progress as well as justified its own colonial holdings. All right. Um, so. Which, fair enough. Yeah. However, yeah. the reason why I think it's always interesting. I always enjoy reading Nietzsche because I feel like 
he manages like the he manages to be as he always loves to say untimely and he even credits his untimeliness to the fact that he is a classicist and that yeah. what is the point of being a classicist if not to find things which are untimely to bring into the present mm -hmm. and to look at them and see like what of this is for us now like what can we do with this and the only point of it is that it stands over and against us in some ways mm -hmm. in our ways of thinking about things so it's it's always just like funny to me the way in which like it would be unremarkable to someone with that viewpoint the way in which those illusions were shattered and sure. perhaps you know what i mean and i think that is what i'm interested in and the fact that he seems to be getting into nietzsche especially more in some of the later chapters because as we were as i was reading the first the first chapter the first section i guess it seemed to me like fundamentally the argument is going to be here that like progress is somewhat empirical mm -hmm. because i don't like even though like you can see the idealism sort of like throughout like he's always like it was okay so this is interesting sorry i'm getting kind of jumbled because my intellectual capacities have plummeted but nonetheless there is a sense in which he like just talks about masses of homogenous people and what really moves in them is ideas and so yeah. When he talks to you about the way in which the Soviet Union fell, it's that simply at a certain point, enough homogenous people who like made up the intellectual middle class had been exposed to the idea of democracy and the idea of uh, economic liberalism, and mm -hmm. they believed in it. And then that idea moved in them and created this thing. And I would always like the, the, the way in which I have begun to think about things over the last few years is kind of like really antagonistic to that way of thinking, I totally. think. Yeah. And I am just thinking like, you know, you can put it that way. But you could also say like, there were like cliques of actual people who like had actual personalities and interests that all mm -hmm. seemed to coalesce around the fact that, like, I guess as Curtis Jarvin would like say, New York City is the capital of the world. Like, mm -hmm. and you're either... So you're either in the metropole, like culturally, or you're just some big player, like in the province. And like nobody who learns enough to know that will then want to maintain that position, which is more or less like the interesting way in which he characterizes like right wing dictatorships around the world as like mm -hmm. once you're an intellectual in one of those and you realize that like New York City, London, like those are the places like that matter in the world and like where you are and the government you're living under like do not matter. Like mm -hmm. you will want to bring where you live into that sphere so badly. It's the classic idea of like the East Germans wanting blue jeans and rock and roll music. There's something there sure. that's like so fundamentally attractive, but there's also like actual groups of people who form like networks, who know each other, who talk, who like, so these things are all like, to me, like interesting and in how particular they can get. And I think that the, the like sort of idealist narrative of the way in which like democracy, like its spirit simply moves through the souls or whatever, and then like yeah. animates them kind of elides a lot of that. And it is sort of, you know, like, it's fine. I know exactly what kind of person he is reading that. And I'm not going to like begrudge him for feeling mm -hmm. that way. But it is interesting to, to notice that now because it's something that's less compelling to me than it might have been before. And there's a sense in which a lot of this chapter 
was at the same time kind of hand wavy about a lot of things while at the same time you can you know you can generously give him that like okay like I know you don't really want to like get into the specifics of all the things you're bringing up you just want to bring them up say these support my point of view and then move on and I guess that's fine because we have more important things to talk about but at the same time given that this seems to be sort of like the chapter that is saying like empirically historically like what I am trying to talk about seems to be bearing out as a general long-term trend despite short run dips and like Mm -hmm. liberalism or whatever, like in the long run, this is sort of like an inescapable curve. I think it's more or less what he's trying to say, like using his little graph of like, what is a democracy? Yeah. That comes later in this section. Yeah. (laughs) We'll get to the the cute little poli-sci graph that he busts out. So what is our pessimism? Our pessimism is at the idea of a progressive history and at a universal history. And he sort of wants to give credence to why there was a crisis of faith over the course of the 20th century about this direction, and then sort of console the reader and say, do not worry. In fact, we have plenty of evidence that it is our pessimism that is out of date. And what we experienced was basically a brutal short run dip in the ultimate triumph of liberal democracy and progress, et cetera, and the struggle for recognition that one aspires to. And the feature, why we're exiting the realm, the province of pessimism, has to do with what he describes as the weakness of strong states. And this is why the totalitarian thing is is important because what he wants to say is that right and left deviations from liberal democracy. So authoritarianism, I don't know what that word means. I'm like, it seems to have zero political content to me. Like I kind of get it at a conceptual level. Like, I think it what? was at its best when he tries to say that it is like, because the only, I was thinking like when I first read it, I was like, in what way is the United States like not a strong state? Like it's a sprawling bureaucracy that's kind of unfathomable. It's like a global <laughs> military presence. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, in what sense are we differentiating strong and weak states? And I think the only time that was really clear to me in this chapter was when he talks about the, like, I guess, a strong state and somehow invades the private sphere in a way that mm-hmm. I guess he's going to say a liberal democracy, like almost definitionally won't in the sense that like, and that is actually, I think more and more really up for debate in terms of like, yes, he would that grant is something that, we should talk like, about that. So, yeah. so for him, like Western Europe would be like somehow essentially like one of these collections of liberal democracies, mm-hmm. but they are then supposed to guarantee like certain freedoms in the private sphere that are very like Lockean, like mm-hmm. you have freedom of religion, you can participate and vote and things like that. And like your property will be respected, et cetera. And so at least I guess if you're saying like, this is 1990 or whatever, and it's like, yes, the countries were in like, because he'll then talk about, so you have these dictatorships, which are sort of soft right wing and that they're made up of like some kind of elite that is now like less and less important to the country than it used to mm-hmm. be, which is sort of hanging on to power. 
and it wants to sort of reinforce these old social values, but it is actually not interested or capable of invading the private sphere to a great degree versus what he would characterize as like the Nazi and Stalinist regimes, mm -hmm. which to him were totalizing and thus totalitarian. So when I was thinking about it like that, I was like, okay, I guess then if you want to say there's like a spectrum of state strongness, and if you want to only talk about it in terms of private sphere invasion or not, then mm -hmm. that kind of makes sense. But like you said, it will be utterly problematized by like any number of social programs going on in the United Kingdom and France, et cetera, that are all designed to invade like the private sphere utterly and totally. Yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> so I think, well, and all right. So that basically what defines, and I'm glad you brought that up, what defines something being right or left strong state authoritarianism or whatever seems to be is my reading i'd like to hear what you make of this john is that it's all about their relationship to civil society right and the right seems to want to crush it and the left the communist left wants to just like totally absorb it mm. Right. So it's, it's really different versions of top down and we can, I guess, conceptualize that further, but he doesn't really do that. So I'm not going to put words in his mouth. Like that's really what we're left with. It seems. Yeah. There is a sense in which he's just trying to sort of get through these topics, I guess. I mean, that kind of makes sense to me. There was right. at you can't least go like... Through like every single thing, you know, and what he wants to say is he says, you know, what makes liberal democracy a weak state? And this is what he means by it. The state in a liberal democracy is by definition weak. Preservation of a sphere of individual rights means a sharp delimitation of its power. We're going to have some questions about that assumption and the relationship between liberalism and democracy, which he sort of has a parallax view of, depending on where you are, even in this chapter. And we're, we're going to get to that here in a second. So right. I just Richard, want to bring a lot to say about that. Yeah, there is a lot to say about that. And the other thing that I want to bring up is in terms of him glossing over things, like one of the interesting questions is like liberal democracy's ability to like foment in the case of America, incredibly, like the treatment of Chile. And this is like so funny to me. We're just yeah. like, well, you know, they did a good job of getting rid of Pinochet. I was like, yeah, who we like put there. <laughs> 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 such things are mere accidents and by no means should we feel pessimistic yeah, I was like, <laughs> thinking <what>? about them <laughs> i was like yeah like it just as he goes through all of the central and latin american countries i'm like how many of these guys did we fund like and then we're sort of like you know it's like breaking someone's leg and then being like wow we really made your bones stronger once you've healed <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Yeah, there is definitely the classic academic view from nowhere sort of going on with this, where it's like, I'm not really looking at this from any particular point of view. Yeah, it so, just so happened know. that, you know, there was a right-wing <laughs> dictatorship there run by a rid of elites. Them. Yeah, and, and to be fair to the right-wing dictator, he like liberalized the economy and they're doing well. Now, <laughs> so like, yeah, fair's fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like in the long run, you know, maybe, you know, <laughs> you know, Pinochet wasn't the hero we needed, but he was the hero we deserved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know so, yeah yeah so i mean there's a little bit of that i'm very impressed with and again i think this speaks to like the level at which the cold war really shaped the american academy like his kremlinology his russian history like i don't i don't know a lot about russian history but what you notice is that it is markedly more detailed in terms of major players, how power changes hands, the different ideologies of iterations of the Soviet regime. I'm like name a bunch of Soviet economists that I've never heard of, which is Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. And I really respect that. I mean, I think that, you know, Condoleezza Rice had memorized like every member of the Kremlin, their family, like, you know, just the whole tree of relationships there. And I, I forget who pointed it out. It was like, when we went into Iraq, like no one could say the same thing about the Bathist party there. Like right. people did not give a shit. <laughs> like they were just like Paul Bremer just walking around in Timberlands, like LFG, bro. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So we have that. And I think like, I think we can just sort of like move on. There's not a lot to say about the weakness of strong state stuff. I think you know, it's sort of like an exhaustive and exhausting anecdotal history of how everyone gets the democracy virus and then overthrows the dictators that are there. He points out that there are some challenges from Islam, but Islam, like communism, seems to be in a rearguard state. And as a brief um, aside, it was funny to see him kind of demonstrate like what I want to now call the American foreign policy theory of Islam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, for real. It was so funny. It was just like, well, they basically have no laws other than what God says and like no jurisprudence that could ever be compared to anything like what came out of the Commonwealth of England. Uh, right. So they're all just savages about, cutting off each other's heads in the sand. There's essentially this kind of like baseline assumption that Islam is going to be like antagonistic to liberalism, which I don't know, like that's not really necessarily true. And the first you know, one thing that I really appreciate about a lot of the, like, libertarian collectives of, like, intellectuals is they have done, like, all of this intense work on talking about, like, the liberalism inherent and, in, like, classical Confucianism, the liberalism inherent and, <laughs> yeah. like, classical is, like, yeah. they've actually gone and, like, looked into things and, like, talked about how... They've done, like, a worldwide how... victory lap, basically, of being, like, we're there all of the time. We're right. Essentially, but time. I think that the universalizing vision sort of has something to recommend it over sure. whatever the hell is going on here, because that at least sort of posits that we can all actually somehow, like, coexist. And there's other work, especially by, like, European Muslims talking essentially about how the death of Lockean liberalism is the most dangerous thing if you're a Muslim in Europe right now, because essentially all these states are suddenly very, very strong and they're like looking at you weird. And so I think that like the lack of complication or nuance in that, and especially because to him, Islam equaled Iraq and Iran and like the other <laughs> states that aren't worth mentioning. And By like whatever way, was... Th throughout the 90s, he's writing open letters like, why haven't we killed Saddam Hussein? <laughs> like, why yeah. haven't we done this? And then after 9-11, a week afterwards, he's basically like puts his name on an open letter signed by a bunch of, bunch of intellectuals that may as well have been a transcript of Clint Eastwood's monologue from uh, what's that movie called? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, about it. And like makes no mention, doesn't even mention WMDs. It's just like, bitch, we're going. <laughs> and he omits all of that from right. his, his, it's partway through a crisis. Like he's willing to implicate himself in the intellectual milieu that 
he sort of overputs the onus on neoconservatives, as frankly, a lot of liberals do on who decided to invade Iraq. But I just want to say that that is like a strain in his thought that is sort of like, what do we do with our victory? Especially these guys who were committed, like Bill Kristol and others, to like really seeing America as the world police, whose job it was to have an aggressive universalism. Right. And I think we can sort of see here also, like in the way he talks about Islam, sort of the tension between the Kojevian universalism and the Straussian particularity. There is something, I don't know if I could say like that I could directly attribute this to Hegel, but like this is more or less how Hegel seems to have seen the world as essentially like places that weren't Europe were just like utterly ossified Mm-hmm. and incapable of generating anything at the point mm-hmm. at which he was writing and for him like the only place that had any dynamism where like spirit was going to do whatever the hell was like in europe and like napoleon all this stuff like this is mm-hmm. where things were happening which like i would say you could essentially completely contrast to the other group of people who were concerned with like the advent of liberalism which would be more like i don't want to like of like Austrian and Anglo liberals who would, mm-hmm. I think, have taken a more interesting, in the case of the English, a more naturalist, like this sort yeah. of, it's just, it's just there already. It's just happening. Mm-hmm. If you just let things happen, they happen this way. And then it's in that right. sense, it's not culturally determined. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of the Austrians, it's, it's something kind of different, but it has a similar effect in terms of like these things in agreement with people, perhaps like Hegel, will sort of most likely it would be best for them to come about globally over time. And that's what we think will happen. But the Hegelianism ends up getting you this weird like bifurcation of cultures, which I guess is just very German, honestly. Like, Well, so this is something that I was talking to, to an artist about the other day. I was talking to a painter and we were sort of talking about the, the museum. We're talking about Robert Hughes because Josh and I, and we will continue to do so, are doing that series on the shock of the new. And one of the things we discussed was the museum arriving with the advent of empire in the way that we understand it, that it is hoovering up all sorts of items from all over the world that can be witnessed by the metropolitan, including artists, but are also cataloged and curated. And this is co-emergent with things like the, as I understand it, German historicist school that is interested in these sweeping narratives of history and understanding it in this way. So there is sort of a a, a material, maybe aesthetic, and then intellectual current that's happening here that we can sort of see in the background of Fukuyama's thought. As Perry Anderson uh, points out, I think quite adeptly in his little essay review, of Fukuyama's, some of his later work. Now, what can be said of liberalism by Fukuyama, right? The worldwide liberal revolution, he says. This is my favorite, my favorite thing. So he talks about, (laughs) I love this, man. Okay, so the weakness of strong states has meant that many former authoritarianisms has now given way to democracy while the former post-totalitarian states have become simple authoritarianisms, if not democracies. Kind of unclear what that's actually communicating, especially when he goes into what he means by democracy, which I'll get to in a second. 
But I just wanted to note on this, which I thought was hysterical, given the mutual interest John and I have in Asian, particularly Japanese and Korean development in the 20th century, which he says, the Asian success story was not limited to early modern artists like Japan, but eventually came to include virtually all countries in Asia willing to adopt market principles and integrate themselves fully into the global capitalist economic system. This is part I underlined. Their performance suggested that poor countries without resources other than their own hardworking populations could take advantage of the openness of the international economic system and create unimagined amounts of new wealth, rapidly closing the gap with the more established capitalist powers of Europe and North America. That is like not how I would describe the tenure of President Park Chung-hee in South Korea <laughs> as like this, <laughs> as like ragged dick. <laughs> it's definitely like, like even if we were to limit ourselves, I think to like fairly mainstream economics, it's like kind of an, I would say a fairly outdated view of development even there. Like yeah. the idea that there is a kind of linear progression that you just join as soon as you start lifting because i used yeah. that, <laughs> yeah. that term exit you just get on the lp you do yeah, go mat. yeah, yeah. <laughs> getting, you know like you get your squad up to like 365 or something yeah like right, you know yeah. a couple months and then you're going to be with the big boys eventually and then like mm -hmm. there is a, there, that was kind of an idea of, of like growth and that like you could get plugged sure. in at any time and then essentially there was no reason why you wouldn't then like be economically like GDP growth wise equal to like the UK at its best or whatever, or the United States. And then empirically, this just like never happened in a lot of places that joined the world economy, which then caused people to begin to rethink this idea and just start to take more of a view of like, what is the impact of technology? Like, is it exogenous? Is it endogenous? Where does mm -hmm. it come from? What does it mean? Like, starting to look more at things like that, also wondering about institutions and what impact and institutions will play in a country on like its economic development. So it started to get a lot more sophisticated sure. than the like very old and initial view that seems to be reigning with Fukuyama's sort of, and this is where I would call it pretty triumphant, that yes. particular section where he's not, I mean, and to be fair, this isn't an economics book. He's not really interested in that. But nonetheless, like this is another case in which I started to get a little leery of the amount of like the waving of the hand that was going on toward things mm -hmm. that seemed to merit like either more explanation or just not being talked about at all. <laughs> right. Well, and I, okay. So that leads into my next thing where he's going to talk about what his definitions of liberalism and democracy are, which I think are very, and the two liberalisms, right? political liberalism and economic liberalism, liberalism. So I think it's fair to kind of go after him for the lack of sophisticated, lack of sophistication in his economics thing. Look, I'm not an economist either, but at least like a head nod to how complicated that is and that it's not actually an easy narrative would have been nice because he's going to lean on that as a pillar. Mm -hmm. Like it has to be both and if you're going to be in the club, right? Yeah. Like, so, Okay. <laughs> He defines liberalism and democracy, I thought this is interesting, while closely related are separate concepts. Political liberalism can be defined simply as a rule of law that recognizes certain individual rights or freedoms from government control. And of course, you can have a different type of democracy. 
Hysterically, at some point in this chapter, he says that Periclean Athens was not indeed a democracy because it did not have liberal protections on individual rights, which seems to cut against this distinction he wants to make now. And it's also just an insane thing to say, considering they were the well, originators. He talks about the franchise too, like the franchise yeah. wasn't universal or something, so it didn't qualify. And I'm like, okay, it wasn't in America. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like this is so weird, but also like they invented the term. Like, you know, like it's an ancient Greek. Anyway, I just thought that was really funny. So he does want to confine liberalism to Lord Bryce's classic work on democracy. Again, the conflation between these three things or between these things, which limits them to three civil rights, the exemption from control of the citizen in respect to of his person and property, religious rights, exemption from control in the expression of religious opinions and the practice of worship and what was called political rights exemption from control in matters which do not so plainly affect the welfare of the whole community as to render control necessary, including the fundamental right of press freedom. So some nice, good load-bearing pragmatism in that last one. Mm. You know, lots of stuff that really leans on the two words, reasonable and necessary, which do a lot of heavy lifting in liberal democracies. And hey, look, I'm not going to be like cheap about that and say like they should just spell out what they actually mean. It's actually kind of hard. And so you can right. understand why that happens. And then there's a history of interpretation around that. Okay. I should also say that the way he defines liberalism here basically sets up how he's going to sort of pull Kojev into this. Like what he's just described is, I think he would say what he means by recognition to be liberally recognized means that you have these rights within your political community. Now, democracy, he says, is the right universally held by all citizens to have a share of political power. That is the right of all citizens to vote and participate in politics. The right to participate in political power can be thought of as yet another liberal right, indeed the most important one. And it is for this reason that liberalism has been closely associated historically with democracy. I like... I think there's a lot you could do to pry this apart. This is, again, where it seems like triumphalism by way of theory. Yeah, there's a certain extent to which, like, so my knowledge of the history of, like, liberalism as, like, you could call it tradition of thought is not extensive, Mm -hmm. but it seems to be greater than his, or at least what he's willing to manifest in this book. Yeah. In the sense that one interesting thing I thought is that it, it really does, like, To some extent, you can't really, you can't be too forceful with this criticism against everybody because they have to do some measure of like generalizing to eventually make a point. But at the same time, like the amount at which liberalism got leveled into nothingness by this definition, because it is very interesting because the, I would say for a long time, like democracy was not an important aspect of liberal thinking. Like it was always there, but to a certain extent, in certain countries, it did not constitute the majority of intellectuals who were interested in it. Like Kant was not a Democrat. I don't, it does not seem to me that like Ludwig von Mises was a Democrat. Like sure, yeah. he was very yeah. much interested in like the non-destruction of the Habsburg empire and like the creation of sort of ethno states that were going to like destroy each other or whatever. Right. If you read Federalist 10, there are concerns about the expansiveness of democracy and the founding fathers' interest in America on voters as property owners. 
right like why they think that you know which is intimately tied so i think there is well, an interesting yeah. even like i just want to like because i think that the way he's going to bring up later and we're going to talk about it when we read it like the worries about the last man the leveling mm -hmm. effects of democracy like this democratic liberalism the way in which the sameness sort of like what will be the end point of that mm -hmm. and like there are profound criticisms of just that from like the liberal the various groups of liberals throughout history like there is a guy eric von kunel i don't know if i'm pronouncing his name right but i was reading something by him where he's talking about the polish like constitutional body or whatever that mm -hmm. vote to like bring in a new king or whatever and there was one point at which you can like feel like energy radiating off of him when he says like and one like one nay vote would like be sufficient to nullify any measure for these people were so free that they would not submit themselves to a majority <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, <laughs> there is clearly like a distinct level of difference going on within this field of thought that you're like never going to know about just reading this book and i like like you said i think to some extent you have to not be easy on him with this stuff because yeah it seems like it's going to be fundamental to the point he's trying to make yeah and at the same time so there's a difficult balance as everybody does when they have to write a book right where like as you said they need to sort of like play the hits <laughs> and like get to what's mm -hmm. going to be unique in what they're saying like not everybody's doing an intellectual genealogy not everybody right. should and that's not what he's trying right. to do here but I, the reason why I wanted to be hard on these points, right? And I'll just slide in his definition of economic liberalism. He says, liberalism in its economic form is the recognition of the right of free economic activity and economic exchange based on private property and markets. Okay, fair enough. That's pretty straightforward. We get that a lot. All right. The reason why I wanted to really emphasize the difficulty of the conflation between, or equivocation, I should say, that he does between democracy and liberalism is because I think that is indeed an outgrowth of American Cold War strategy mm -hmm. and the university's relationship to that and the intellectuals that it produces that are like that, right? So if we think back to our episode on Lash's scathing essay from the 60s on the Congress for Cultural Freedom, we can sort of like see where <laughs> the antecedents of Fukuyama viewpoint lies. And that's worth thinking on because, as I said, as John was saying, that it is going to be sort of foundational here. But I think it should also give us ways to sort of emphasize the last man aspects mm -hmm. that he's thinking of and to maybe complicate them. Because right. if indeed the liberal tradition is richer than what he's saying here, then that might actually create problems for the problem of leveling that he wants to identify in the latter half of the book, right? So that's not to say that we're saying like both liberalism and Fukuyama suck at our time, but rather that the lack of robustness could create unforeseen problems for him down the road. Do we know yet? No, but we want to sort of keep that in our back pocket as we're moving through. I mean, he could just say like, well, that's true, but teleologically, they don't matter. So whatever. And I could be like, okay, <laughs> like, fine. Like, you're right. They yeah. lost. This is what's happening, I guess. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. True, no, true. <laughs> or, okay. But yeah. And so he does the, the thing where he says, you know, like even non-democratic states justify themselves in the term of democracy. There's a fascinating book I've read little parts of called Athens on Trial that looks at the discourse around democracy in the West and sort of tries to talk about how it came to be 
that democracy so hated by pretty much everybody up until the like 19th and like latter half of the 19th and generally 20th century was no longer this tar baby, but was something to actually emphasize and champion and, and why that is. And so people can go check that out if they would like. But I this thought is this is the point. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to, like, as a brief aside, like, this is exactly the point on which I think I was first introduced to this book, like, as a soundbite, mm-hmm. which I had actually never heard anyone making any of the, like, really tawdry criticisms of it that were apparently always out there first. The thing mm-hmm. I heard first was, like, clicking on a random Zizek video and hearing him say, Francis Fukuyama, he's not an idiot. Like, yeah. Like, people say, like, he is actually very smart, you know, like, yeah, yeah, we are all Fukuyamaists now. Yeah, we are a Fukuyamaist. Where I think he is wrong is capitalism with, you know, Chinese characteristics or whatever, <laughs> like, which I was seeing so much of in reading this first section. I was like, oh, yeah, definitely. There is a sense in which Fukuyama is almost alive to that reality when mm-hmm. he's talking about China. But there is a certain sense in which his his view that, like, political liberalism is going to be triumphant will not allow him to see what is going on in places like that as he like really dismissively terms like post 89 China as like just another right-wing Asian state like nothing to see here folks like move right along that was sort of crazy to me because there's also this interesting discussion to have about like statehood the idea of the nation state Mm. and just as as a brief little thing here because I was I was noticing the same thing the way he talked about China I thought was a little bit cheap and kind of arrogant and yeah. sort of that arrogant <laughs> that got the West into big trouble. And also because of like the, the, the economic liberalism aspect of this year and what that particularly ended up meaning in America, which meant like all sorts of offshoring and things like that. And we might say hey, like, hey, a lot of Chinese people got lifted out of poverty. That's great. At whose, expense, at whose expense in America is another, is a rejoinder to that. Strategically for people like Fukuyama, and I think he's very much like a strategic cold warrior type of guy the mm-hmm. way in which economic liberalism basically created the chinese state western businesses moving over there is an interesting problem for hawks today and it's something that no one will really like be honest with themselves about that there might be some real problems here when every head of your major NGOs like has a China branch and is going over there and like talking to them. That's true for like the environmental organizations too, you know, and like what that means and how does that impact civil society in America and what's the relationship here and what does someone owe the nation state? Anything, nothing, what's what's going on here? So I think that's an interesting blind spot to mark for now, just like mm. this. The days of Islam's cultural conquests, it would seem, are over. It can win back elapsed adherence, but it has no residence for young people in Berlin, Tokyo, or Moscow. I have a feeling there are a bunch of knife-wielding dudes in Europe who have driven vans into civilians that beg to fucking differ, bud. (laughs) Also, I think much more interestingly, like, I don't know, like, the demographic evidence is not easy to come by, but I think in a hundred years, people are going to look back on what was like a profound century of like Islamic conversion in the non-historically Islamic world. It's happening a lot in Latin America. You'll never hear it talked about unless you look like weird ends of the internet, like Vice sometimes will do a special. There's like an Islamic community almost entirely like 
sprang up just from like pure interest of the people there. I think it was like in wherever the the Zapatista like area was, and they're oh, just yeah, like yeah. chilling, like yeah. quoting this guy was like quoting like the gospel of Mark or something and like talking about becoming a Muslim. It was like cool. But anyways, I don't know. That was it. This is not important to the book, but it was just another instance of like his weird, like profound willingness to just like do some random bald assertion about something and then move on. Like, well, obviously knowing absolutely nothing about what was going on at all. Like to be fair, again, like in the nineties, this probably felt like the right thing to say. Hard to call that ball game. Who, who, yeah, you know, I I would also say that, like, you know, I didn't mean to reduce all of Islam to like they're crazy extremists or whatever, but only to say that his concerns in the latter half of this book, which we'll get to, seem to have made people vulnerable Mm. to a certain type of reactionary religious fanaticism that I have seen lectures from very like radical, basically terroristic imams saying we should exploit that because the West doesn't believe in anything. And when we do random terrorist attacks, they, you know, there's that thing in the Adam Curtis documentary, I forget which one it is, that basically says like, Mm. they can't respond in any coherent way because they have no values and it further demoralizes their society. Yeah, there's no like Admiral Horatio anymore. <laughs> right. And so I think that <laughs> those was, days that are was, gone. But okay, so we've done some criticism of Fukuyama. Here's where I think that he is this this gets couched just below this thing on page 46 that I read about Islam. And I think that this is like really what he means when he's talking about the world we live in today. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, This is basically where we are. He says, you know, we can imagine futures better or worse than the one that we have now, whether because of climate change, which he's talking about here or whatever. He says, but we cannot picture to ourselves a world that is essentially different from the present one and at the same time better. Other, less reflective ages also thought of themselves as the best, but we arrive at this conclusion exhausted as it were, from the pursuit of alternatives we felt had to be better than liberal democracy. The part where he says less reflective is so annoying. That part, that part yeah. I was just like, come on, bro. But the, the thing he follows that up with. Right, is, yeah. John and I, before I just, we recorded, I just couldn't. we're talking, John and I, before we recorded, we're talking about the, the dialectic of reading Fukuyama, which is yeah. alternating between being really annoyed and like kind of impressed. Yeah. <laughs> and just toggling between those moods while reading it. But I think that, uh, that here he's basically has his finger on the pulse. This is what Zizek means when he says we're all Fukuyamas now. This is sort of what the guys at Alpha Bunga Bunga are looking at with their book, The End of the End of History, which is sort of being post this exhaustion somehow. I think once we finish this book, I will finally get around to reading their book and bring them on. And we Mm. can do sort of like a talk about Mm. Fukuyama, their book, and where we are now after COVID. Because the rest of this chapter is him just being like, we're doing liberal democracy, like get in losers, you know, (laughs) like... (laughs) Yeah. We're doing it. What could a universal history mean given that shit fucking rules now? An idea for a universal history is the beginning of the next chapter as the next chapter's title in the second section, the old age of mankind. So 
All right. I want to say something here. So Joey Keegan, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. He's been on here before. He and I had a great conversation about Unitarian Universalist integralists, as he calls them who have created the woke world we live in. And that's really funny. Yeah, it's a really funny <laughs> joke. I thought it was so good. You, you integralists. It's so yeah. great. It's so perfect. I don't know why he hasn't gotten more credit for that. I think it's sharp as hell. But <clears throat> Okuyama just came out with a new book that's sort of like his post-COVID book or whatever. I haven't read it. But Joey went to one of his talks. And Joey was sort of like asked a very straightforward question which was, could not technocracy, the way that we've seen it penetrate the private sphere, especially after COVID, pose a more entrenched and dire threat to the liberal tradition than populism right or left? To which, uh, according to Joey, uh, Fukuyama spent a good 10 minutes talking about how everybody has to get the vaccine and then basically said no and was annoyed. And we discovered, like, decades earlier, the seeds of that very weaselness when he says, <laughs> reasonably, like, so if it affects the whole body politic, then the government can kind of do whatever they want. Yeah. Essentially, that was already, like, packed into one of those sentences we looked at earlier. Yeah. And you were saying, like, interesting load-bearing uh, words, you know, like, oh, it's reasonable <laughs> to that. And I was, it's just... I, it's probably not for nothing that that's there and that that's a viewpoint that he holds mm-hmm. while upholding liberalism. There is this built-in escape hatch from ever having to like sacrifice anything for like the sort of liberal freedom. Because if you could say like, well, the existential threat is too much, i.e. like Al-Qaeda, then suddenly those freedoms could just go away that we've enjoyed in certain ways, which is what we saw happen as we were growing up. So it's in some ways, I think kind of, like as much as he wants to be like a spokesperson for the liberal tradition, there mm-hmm. is a sense in which I think like we're seeing in the subtle ways in this book. And as you just said, and now today, at apparently a Q&A, he also represents the kind of like ease with which that viewpoint will be compromised, like in the service of whatever the currently reigning like power happens to mm-hmm. be that decides that it the state of exception or whatever i guess if you want to you want to talk about that but like yeah. there is a certain you know what i mean like there is a sense in which this defense of liberalism is not principled and i think that's worth pointing out <laughs> like <laughs> yeah exactly you know so anderson says this in 2006 he says you know the the struggle for recognition and that being the primary motor of history you know for fukuyama he says if this vision now appears to be something of an encumbrance for fukuyama Perhaps that is because it was a theory of mortal conflict. Hegel and Kojev were each in their own time, Gina, Stalingrad, philosophers of war. Their legacy is too antagonistic for the purposes of drawing a line between the newfound caution of the statecraft Fukuyama now recommends and the democratic hypomania of former friends at the standard. The platitudes of modernization theory are safer. But there is a price to be paid for the drop in intellectual level to State Building 101, the title, without excessive irony, of one of Fukuyama's recent essays. As a run-of-the-mill social scientist, he is never less than competent. There is, in his criticism of free market recipes for development in poor countries and call for strong public authorities, what could be read as a memory trace 
of his Hegelian formation, the idea of the state as the carrier of rational freedom. But the miscellaneous proposals with which America at the crossroads ends, and you know, greater reliance on soft power, more consultation with allies, yada, yada, are of a desolating predictability. The true, truisms of every beyond passant editorial or periodical in the land. The most that can be said of them is that in offering a bipartisan prospectus for the foreign policy establishment, they seal a well-advertised vote for John Kerry in understanding with Brzezinski, who co-edits the American interest with Fukuyama. <laughs> there is not the faintest suggestion in these pages of any basic change in the staggering accumulation of military bases around the world or the grip of the US on the Middle East, let alone symbiosis with Israel. Everything that brought the country to 9-11 remains in place. It is enough to look at the blistering essay by John Mearsheimer, who's been vindicated as far as what's been going on in Ukraine, and Stephen Walt in the current London Review of Books, significantly in no domestic publication, to see the enormous gulf between the strategic Muzak of this kind and genuinely critical reflection on American foreign policy from thinkers who have earned the title realist. After starting his book under the aegis of Wilson, who brought the gospel of democracy to the peoples of the earth, Fukuyama ends it by enlisting Bismarck, who knew how to practice self-restraint in the hour of victory, an inspiration for his alternative way for the United States to relate to the rest of the world. What the Iron Chancellor, who had a grim sense of humor, would have made of this pairing with the 14 points is not difficult to imagine. And such prescriptions of, of Fukuyama and so many others today, America is not at any crossroads. It is just where it has always been, squaring the circle of philanthropy and empire to its own satisfaction. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Go off, King. <laughs> And that brings oh. up something that I, we didn't really talk about, but it's kind of important is the way in which the master-slave dialectic is like the engine of this whole thing, yeah. where like all, essentially like all history, at least all political history, and then like cast back into like sort of an imagined prehistoric time where people are mm -hmm. just slugging each other. Is yeah, right, yeah. You are fighting other people so that they will recognize you and it is the tripartite division of the soul is what is here mentioned. And it is the mm -hmm. appetite of soul, which wants things like lust, food, whatever. Mm -hmm. There is the rational soul, which is able right. to like. So this is the reason. platonic ontology. Yeah. And then there is the, I don't remember what Plato calls it, but once it gets to the Islamic tradition, it's called the lordly soul. And one interesting thing that he identifies with that uh, part, this is the part she says seeks recognition and what it ultimately seeks is to be recognized as a human being and it that's what it wants supposedly and all of this fighting becoming a master having other people decide they'd rather live than be honorable and thus become slaves like you are fighting them enslaving them to receive their recognition but it's always going to be an unsatisfactory recognition because it is the recognition of people you don't recognize yourself so You're there's right, not yeah. any quality to it or whatever there's like an interesting way of putting it, but it's definitely not the only way of understanding that aspect of the soul. Like, I don't even think that that's that traditional. Like to me, everything I had always ever seen was that part of the soul wants dominance. Like it wants Too to much, subject. Greek. Yes. Much. It wants to subject other people to your will 
it is not desiring the like free exchange of like human record like Kantian sort of thing which is what he makes of it as like a very mm -hmm. like proto-liberal like trans-historical desire and I don't know that much about Hegel and Kuzhev, but like it's possible that this is what they were positing about it. No, this well. is so. This is the part that really comes from Plato. Like this is where he's sort of bringing in an ontology that is foreign to okay. the engine that he wants to deploy, and that's sort of the difficulty of the Straussian and Kuzhevian inheritance. That's why I brought it up at the beginning because right. I think it will produce a lot of problems. It's also sort of like why Nietzsche becomes an important part of this book, right? Like there's an epic where there's a quote from Nietzsche that opens up the next chapter we'll probably read that aloud because it's always worth doing that with him you know as the Straussians really love to interrogate Nietzsche and and what he means because he was sensitive to the split between the ancients and the moderns mm -hmm. which is another Straussian preoccupation so that part is I think there's going to be a whole chapter on Thumos later Right. And so we can get into sort of like what he might mean there. Because again, he might come back and fill out some of this stuff. That's right. True. Like, and so we want to give him the space to do that. Like, I'm happy to be wrong in my estimation of the shallowness of some of this. Though I think that like the way this opens up, it would be hard to retain certain elements of this argument and expand it any further later. But I could be wrong. Hey, you know, like. I haven't read it before, but yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to have that there. Just a little bit more background. I talked about the exchange between Kozhev and Strauss, these two figures, which you can find in the book on tyranny about Xenophon's Hiero. Xenophon's Hiero is a discussion between Hiero the tyrant and Simonides, a poet. And the reading that Strauss does of this, and I don't know Kozhev's, is whether or not to be a tyrant is better. And one of the things that comes up it seems, is that Hiro lacks that recognition from others, or at least wants to pretend that he lacks it, and that that is one of the difficulties of being a tyrant. Whether or not he's playing a game with Simonides or not is for more judicious readers to sort of attempt I haven't read that dialogue in a long time, but I think at stake there, we can kind of see the split between the two thinkers that Fukuyama wants to employ and sort of some of the roots of this debate in Western thought over politics and desire, which is, I think, part of what's at stake here, right? So whether or not it is a desire for recognition or a more naked discharge of energy to subjugate people below that, that needs to be tempered by spiritual grace and or rationality, you know, a general sense of paternal goodliness, you know, there are all sorts of things you could imagine. And you, I'm already imagining from the first book of Plato's Republic that obtain mm. here. So what I will say that's sort of refreshing about Fukuyama is that he's obviously somebody that is well-versed in the Western tradition in a way I feel like I don't see anywhere. Like I would not describe Ben Shapiro as somebody who's like thoughtfully engaged with the Western canon, though he's written a book on it. You know, yeah. I, and I would say the same thing for Jordan Peterson, who wants to do this weird syncretism between, you know, Burkeanism and Jungian depth psychology that I just don't think is persuasive ultimately. Mm. But that's who we have. And as for the left, I think it's sort of tragic, except in more sparsely populated quadrants of it, to see anybody who's willing to invoke positively the Western inheritances of things like republicanism and what those have meant to history.
and to, I guess, from their view, the development of mankind. So I think that's sort of what I'm enjoying for this because he has roots deep enough that allow for substantive disagreement and substantive debate. You can say he's wrong, but you can't be dismissive. And I think what aggravates me about so much of what I read these days, just like so much of what I watch in terms, it's like movies that don't want you to watch them or like don't give a shit if you are. It's like <laughs> books that don't really care if you read them. Mm-hmm. You know? Like you're allowed to dismiss them. You know, what they're, what they're really for is about getting talking points that will, you will use in the discourse wars. And to his credit, I don't think Fukuyama's up to that. I think he is actually far more of a plain dealer in terms of honest intellectual ambition. There is a great interview with Deleuze on the new thinkers of France in his day, like the 70s maybe. And he was saying like, the books are occasions for the TV appearance at this point. Like the book Mm -hmm. is absolutely nothing. Like it is the author's subjectivity reasserting itself after Foucault like attempted to talk about it it is back and -hmm. it is now like there is no other point than for you to be on tv to write the book no one reads the book it doesn't matter it has nothing to say yeah it's just it's interesting to see that this is a trajectory which has been identified like even at that point and i i agree with you i as i was reading this and as many times as as we talked about the dialectic reared its head and i was annoyed and impressed or whatever Mm -hmm. i was at least Initially, I was reading it and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be happy that I spent my time this way when I read a few Mm -hmm. paragraphs of like really tawdry trotting out of like, this is why we win kind of stuff. This is why I'm hot. This is why I'm hot. This is why I'm hot. (laughs) I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be happy that I used my life to read this book. You ain't because you're not. (laughs) Like I could just listen to that song and it would be so much better. Yeah. But then you move into something else he's you're like okay like i no longer feel that way like there will be something to this this won't mm-hmm. be like completely empty which was the fear i think going into it is like maybe this guy really does suck like this is just going to be really sad and like no, what are we even going to talk about on the show like but no it actually he engages enough with enough things that there will be i think plenty for us to talk about and i will say as like maybe glossed over as some of the political content of things like liberalism or democracy are there's content there and there's a clear Mm -hmm. like set of beliefs that he's thought about that you can point to and that have a location in history one of the things that's really depressing about seeing there's somebody who debated like bernard Henri levy the french intellectual or whatever and it's so clear that democracy just means tolerance at this point like he was just like oh well democracy and someone's basically like well what do you mean he was like tolerance (laughs) and it's like okay that's like nothing (laughs) yeah like that's a political emotion and we might culturally want a certain level of that to ameliorate faction within the polity i there's a there's a case to be made for that that's great but as like what democracy boils down to that is basically the thinning of western mainstream intellectualism over the course of the 90s that is the real victory defeats us moment when people just sort of stop thinking and thomas friedman is allowed to publish books (laughs) yeah take it away tom (laughs) on that note i hope you guys enjoyed this opening 
Salvo, this opening investigation to the end of history and the last man. I'm very excited to do the rest of it. I think this is going to be productive. And I think it will put yet more context around our question of why nothing feels possible. So stay safe out there and we will see you next time. We're number one.